Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by your word now, you would produce in our hearts the humility that we should feel as humans and as sinners. And Lord, we pray that you would cause the good news of your grace to be overwhelming to us. And we pray that you would cause the rain of grace to take hold in our hearts and to to dictate everything that we do. We pray, Lord, that you would mark us by this grace and make it what we are most eager to talk about and most eager to study further. And Lord, we pray that it would pervade, that your grace would pervade our lives. And we ask that you'd help us to be those who render to you because of it the thanks and praise that you deserve. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a little kid, I, I had a, sixter, a sister who was 16 months younger than I am. And um, like brothers and sisters often do, my little sister would, would sort of pick on me and pester me. And then when she had me perfectly enraged and ready to react, she would flee to our father. She would go and take refuge, and then I would look like the bad guy, you know. She gets me all fired up, and then I come chasing her through the house, and she goes running into the arms of our dad, and, and then I get to dad, and I'm raging mad, and she's just, she curls up in his, in his arms, you know, and she just sort of looks at me. What are you going to do now? And um, now we've grown up, and we're mature, and we never fight. <laughs> no. We've grown up and we're mature and we're still sinners. And um, we were with family over the, over the Christmas break and um, um, there was an interaction where I thought I was in the right and she thought I had conducting myself in a way that was inappropriate and so she told me so. And I didn't appreciate being told that I had not acted in an appropriate way and so I began to respond in, you know, sort of in kind. And... As you can imagine, that didn't go over very well. And for the next few days, there was this tension between, between my sister and I until the, the grace of God melted both of our hearts and there were these mutual apologies that, that took place and then there was this forgiveness that was extended. Uh, all of this is, is relevant to what we're going to be looking at in Romans 5 today. I would invite you to open a copy of the Bible to Romans chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 12 through 21. And while you turn there, I want to read you this quote from Frederick Nietzsche. Nietzsche says, A degree of culture, and assuredly a very high one, is attained when man rises above superstitions and religious notions and fears, and for instance, no longer believes in a guardian angel or in original sin, and has also ceased to talk of the salvation of his soul. That's just arrogance, isn't it? That you, you, you rise above. You get so cultured and you get so sophisticated that you no longer need superstitions like religion and original sin. 
Well, the problem with what Nietzsche says, one of the problems, is that we all recognize, don't we, that all humans everywhere are sinners. All humans everywhere are sinners. As I was looking into this, uh, there's actually a web page. There's a, there's a web page on the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company's website, on original sin. It's like this explainer for unbelievers on what original sin is. And they actually say some, some really profound and true things about it. For instance, after they, they ask the question, what is original sin?, they, they explain that Christians believe this means that people are born with a built-in urge to do bad things and to disobey God. That's accurate, isn't it? And then, then they say it's an explanation for the evils of the world. It explains, for instance, and this is what we believe, they're accurate, they're on to us. This is why there is so much wrong in a world created by a perfect God. That's exactly right. They also say this is a condition you're in, not just something that you do. Being a sinner is a condition you're in. It's not just something you do from time to time. Um, and then, then when they, they, they start responding to this with um, secular explanations, and, and they say, listen, I'm, I'm just going to read you this quote. Modern thinkers... Don't think the doctrine of original sin is literally true. In other words, they don't believe that there was a historical Adam and that there was a real Garden of Eden and that there, there was this real initial transgression. And then they go on. But they do think it contains real truths about the human condition. And then they say these things. There's a list of bullet points. Listen to this. The world is not as good as we want it to be. So they're recognizing. These unbelievers are recognizing, look, we don't believe the Bible story but the world isn't as good as we want it to be. And then they say, we are not as good as we want to be. This, these, are, these are sinners recognizing, hey, we're sinners. And they're right. Then they say, and this is true also, individual behavior is greatly influenced by things outside the individual's control. Many of these are historical things, events in the individual's past, events in the past of the individual's family, customs that their culture has built up through history. So, so they're, they're using all of this to, to, to flesh out the idea of original sin, and then they get to this section where they describe the usefulness, the usefulness of the doctrine. So as we think about Romans 5, 12 through 21, and original sin. I'm going to read you their list of why this is a useful doctrine, and, and I think they're right in, in, in many ways. They say um, it, it teaches universality. Original sin teaches that all human beings are flawed and sinful. No one is better than anyone else. Now, I just want to, I want to ask you to, to, to do a thought experiment here. And, and just propose, let's, let's just say, for instance, that you believed in evolution. If you believed, maybe some of you here do believe in, I, I mean full-blown, like no God, you know, everything came from the big, big Bang, all the rest. If you believed that, wouldn't you believe that perhaps eventually someone might evolve up and be better than everyone else? And, and wouldn't, 
maybe there, there come along maybe a set of characteristics or a, a set of features that might go with the people who were better than everybody else. You, you, you hear what I'm saying here? I, I think that, that apart from a doctrine like original sin, apart from a doctrine like the historical Adam from which all people descend, I think ideas like the superiority of certain races or certain classes, I think those ideas could make sense in an evolutionary framework. They don't make any sense in a Christian framework because Christianity teaches we all descend from this one historical man and he blew it for all of us. That's what Christianity teaches. So we're all sinners. It also, they say, here's another useful feature of this doctrine. Original sin explains evil without having to portray God as having a bad side or an evil partner responsible for the badness in the world. Evil comes from human rebelliousness. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. They, they also say that it's useful because it shows that, that um, sin is not designed by God in the sense that original sin explains how a world that God designed to be perfect is actually full of evil. That's, that's, that's true. Um, and, and, then, and then they go on with some other, some other things. So, um, I, you know, this is the doctrine of original sin. It's interesting. This is the one doctrine that you could, imp- well, maybe not it's the one doctrine. You could empirically prove this one, couldn't, couldn't you? Demonstrable evidence. You could empirically prove this. I was looking last night at Jonathan Edwards's. A book on original sin, and one of the subtitles, I'm not going to get it right, I didn't write it down, but essentially one of the subtitles is, think something like, think about how many bad people there have been in the history of the world. And, and, he's, and he's bringing that out as a proof of original sin. As we look at this passage, we're going to see that there is bad news. And, and it reminds me of, of uh, my neighbor when we lived in Houston, he went to Lakewood Church, where Joel Osteen was the pastor. Maybe I told you this recently. I can't remember. Um, and and my na- he was a great guy, my neighbor was. And, and one, one afternoon, we were in their home, and um, we were having this, this conversation with them. And he kind of looks at me, and he says, you know, there's good news in the Bible, but there's bad news in there, too. You know, it's like he's pushing back against what he's hearing at his church, which is only the good side, right? He, Joel Osteen's only telling him the good stuff. He's not telling him any of the bad news. There's bad news in this passage, but there's good news in here too. There's really, really good news in here, the best news. So as we look at this passage, um, what, what we're going to see in Romans 5, 12 through 21, in verses 12 through 14, we're going to see the sin of Adam. And then in verses 15 through 17, we're going to see the gift of Christ. And then in verses 18 through 20, 21, we'll see the reign of grace. And, and before we dive in, I want to back up and, and talk just briefly about what we've seen to this point in the book of Romans. So we've been talking about how Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he's so eager to, to proclaim the gospel to them. He's so eager to explain the good news to them. And then he gives them three chapters of how everybody's awfully sin, sinful and, and, and dead in sin before God. And that all leads up to chapter 4, his explanation of how you get justified by faith. And then in chapter 5, in verses 1 through 11, he talks about the results, the fruits of 
justification by faith, and he talks about the hope that we feel. And then we come to this passage where he starts talking about Adam and Christ. And, and I think it's, it's, it's worthwhile to ask, why is this passage here? What's the logic? Why have we just had, for instance, look at, look at 511. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received re reconciliation. You know, he's talking about the reconciliation, the joy that we feel. Why would he then start talking about Adam and Adam's sin? And, and I think that uh, David Peterson, an Australian um, student of the Bible, I think that he's right when he suggests that the reason that Paul goes into this discussion is because he's countering a Jewish misunderstanding. And the particular Jewish idea that Paul is countering is the idea that God's definitive solution to the problem of sin is the law of Moses. So, so you know, he's just talked about the fruits of justification by faith, and now it's like he's anticipating a Jewish objection. Don't we need the law of Moses? And Paul is going to say no, and let me explain to you why. So let's look together at what Paul tells us about the sin of Adam in Romans 5, verses 12 through 14. So Paul says here in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. I want to stop and, and just observe that Paul is interpreting Genesis, isn't he? Paul is, he's, he's telling, us, telling us about what happened in Genesis 3. So Paul is informed by Genesis, and he's now commenting on Genesis. What's interesting, I think, here is that one of the, uh, one of the things in this BB, BBC article, this webpage, they have um, objections to or problems with original sin. And one of the problems that they list with original sin is they say it's misogynistic. Original sin is misogynistic. And the reason they say, which means it's anti-woman, right? The reason they say it's, anti, it's uh, misogynistic is because it holds Eve responsible for bringing sin into the world. But look at Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Eve's not being held responsible there. I think they're wrong. Original sin is not misogynistic. This, Paul is saying Adam's the one responsible, and I think he's right. Actually, I think this shows that, that Paul is operating on the Bible's ideas where, where the man is responsible for the couple. In, in, in this dynamic between Adam and Eve, God held Adam responsible, even though Eve was the first to eat of the fruit. And if you, if you think back at Genesis, um, when, when the Lord did come into the garden, they heard him coming, they tried to hide themselves. The Lord said the words, Adam, where are you? He calls Adam to account. So Paul, Paul is faithfully interpreting what the narrative of Genesis says here. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and, and just as a, a sort of side note here, uh, one of Adam's responsibilities was to work and keep the garden or protect the garden, and Genesis 2.15. So I think it's arguable that Adam had already failed by letting the serpent in. So that his, so you know, by the time Eve actually eats the fruit, well, this is already, Adam has not done what he's supposed to do by protect the garden and keep the snake out. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Uh, Genesis 2.17, 
in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And then Satan's lie to Eve, you will not surely die. Whose statement proved true? All humans, everywhere, in all places, throughout all history, I'm going to little parentheses here, virtually 100% mortality rate. I mean, I know there's some exceptions, right? Enoch was taken. He walked with God. Elijah's taken up uh, chariots of fire. Okay, fine. Everybody else dies. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus died, though. Everybody dies. Everybody dies. I remember hearing West Pastor, our friend, Nets Institute uh, Church planning up in um, uh, Vermont a few years ago. He talked about how he had had the opportunity to share the gospel with a, a, a group of physicians. And he said, you know, I really respect what you guys are doing, but, and, and I'm grateful for what you guys do, but the mortality rate is still 100%. We need a better cure than what you guys have. We need something that goes beyond death, don't we? And then he proceeded to explain the good news of the Lord Jesus. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death is not part of God's original good creation. Death is, death is not on God's agenda in Eden. Death is a result of human rebellion. And, and I think it's interesting the way that Genesis 3 um, presents that sin, and then the very next chapter, this is why I asked for Genesis 4 to be read, the very next chapter, Cain kills Abel. Through one man, sin enters the world, Adam, and death through sin. And Cain is killing Abel in the next chapter. And then in the next chapter, Adam does die physically. And, and even before that, in Genesis 3, when he's hiding from God, I think it shows that he's physically, uh, spiritually dead and, and has to be reconciled to God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, some, this, this has been interpreted in different, in different ways. Some people take that last phrase when it says, because all sinned, some people take that phrase to mean, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And, and whether you come down there or not, I think we can agree on this. If you come down there, that's fine. If you don't come down on, on that conclusion, I think you can agree um, with me that after Adam's sin... None of his descendants get the opportunity to live naked and unashamed, innocent of all transgression, in a pristine, undefiled garden. So what Adam did has ramifications for all of us. And as we continue through this passage, look down at verse 18. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men. I, I think that statement indicates that because of Adam's sin, the condemnation and the guilt of sin is on all people. And now you may respond to that, well, that's unfair. And, and in part, what I want to say in response to that objection is, well, do you think gravity's fair? I mean, you know, this is just the way the world is. Look at the world. Do you see anybody who's not a sinner? 
And, and is there anything that you can do about that reality? No. You can object to the fact that you're a creature if you want to. You can object that, that you're a human being if you want to. But really, this is, this is sort of where we are, right? What are your options? This is the way that God designed the world. It's the way it's set up. And there's something really good that God had in mind to do in setting up the world this way. So, so let's keep working through this passage. Uh, Paul says, now, now, again, I think Paul's purpose here is to take on this, this Jewish misconception that God's definitive answer to the problem of sin in the world is the law of Moses. And I think that's why he says in verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Okay, so uh, Paul seems to be responding to this idea. So he's been, he's been proclaiming the gospel. He's been teaching justification by faith. And he seems to be responding to people who maybe we don't, maybe we don't articulate this idea in our heads, but I think we have this kind of impulse. I, I know that I have this kind of impulse in me, okay? And the impulse is but I'm going to make myself right by what I do. And so it, what seems to have happened is the Jewish people received this good law from God, and then their hearts did with it what our hearts do with our daily Bible reading. I want to commend to all of you this, this endeavor that Gabe is leading us in this year to read through the Bible, but I want to warn you against the legalism that comes with it, the legalism that can come with it, not necessarily comes with it. The legalism that makes you start feeling like, well, I read my Bible today. Aren't I a good person? Or even, in order for God to be favorably disposed to me, I have to check off my boxes. That creeps into us. Now, the response to that is not, well, I'm going to get off this Bible reading plan. Or I'm going to stop pursuing the spiritual discipline of having a, a daily time with the Lord in, in prayer. No, that's not how we respond. How we respond is, I need to put that sin to death. I need to re renew my mind with the gospel. And then I need to persist in discipline in, in, a, in a righteous frame of mind. Okay. So Paul is addressing this legalism in verse 13. He says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. And then he says in, verse, in, in the second half of verse uh, 13, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Here's what I think he means. Where those people had not received the specific mosaic prohibitions and instructions and, and, and so forth, when they, when they transgressed something that was prescribed in the mosaic law, it was not counted to them as a transgression. But he doesn't mean... That means it's not sinful. That's, that's not what Paul means. Look what he says in verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Okay, so from Adam until Moses, there's no Mosaic law. And so they're not transgressing specific Mosaic commandments, but they're still dying. And the reason they're still dying is because they're still sinners. This is kind of related. If you look back at chapter 4, verse 15, the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression, right? Where you don't have a law, you don't have a specific... You haven't broken the code, so to speak, but that doesn't mean you did what was righteous. It doesn't mean you didn't sin. And the proof that they're still sinning is they're still dying. So verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And, and there, what I think he means is, Adam was specifically told, 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Okay, so Adam had a specific prohibition that he transgressed. And even people who didn't receive a specific prohibition, well, they, they still sinned and they still died. And look at what verse 14 says. Death reigned. It's almost like death is this, this power that is personified and it is in control. And it is, it is making the rules and it is setting the terms. And it's, it's the, the Lord of the world. Death is reigning from Adam to Moses. And then at the end of verse 14, Paul says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Now, now here's, here's where we start getting into the good news. The bad news is, because of what Adam did, we all got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Because of what Adam did, we all are alienated from God. Because of what Adam did, his guilt is our guilt, and we are all condemned in him. Verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Look at verse 19, the first line. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Okay? What Adam did has negative ramifications for all of us. I want to read to you the Article 3. This is a selection of Article 3 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It says, In the beginning, man was innocent of sin, prior to Adam's sin, and was endowed by his Creator with freedom of choice. By his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherit a nature and an environment inclined toward sin. And I think if you'll look inside yourself, you'll see that that's true. Our, by nature, we are inclined toward sin things that we should not be inclined to. We all recognize that. And our environment is not the pristine and pure Garden of Eden. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. That, that, that's true of us. And I don't think, I don't think we can charge God with wrong in response to this. Listen to what the Lord says of himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And then this is what I'm driving at here in verse 7 of Exodus 34, visiting the iniquity of the father's on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That principle of the iniquity of the fathers being visited on the children is, is evidenced in the way that Adam's transgression has negative ramifications for everyone who descends from him. So in God's good pleasure, this is, this is who we are. We descend from the sinner. And we have inherited from him a sin nature. Now, I want to offer you a, a, what might be a counterintuitive um, application of this reality. Here's how I would encourage you to apply um, the doctrine of original sin in your own heart and life. 
be someone who loves to repent. And, and you know, the doctrine of original sin should make it easy for us to repent. It should make it, it, should make it easy for us to be humble. Because, now, I'm, I'm not saying you make excuses, right, for your, your, your bad behavior. What I'm saying is you say to yourself, well, let, let's, let me go back to that uh, situation with my sister where she thought that I, what, what happened was, um, I mean, I can be kind of an intense person, you know. I can be uh, sort of a, um, a, a go-getter, and sometimes I don't realize how people are perceiving my intensity. And um, so we were all going to go somewhere together. I don't even remember where we were going. And the van pulls up, and the door opens, and there's like one seat in the van. And all the Louisville Hamiltons, all seven of us, are going to try to go on this trip together. And she's like, get in, we're ready to go. And I'm like, there's not enough room here. I got my whole family. You know, and I'm, I'm like, like sound. she thought that I was being very harsh with her. I thought I was just talking to her. <laughs> well, then she said, you're speaking harshly and you need to calm down. And boy, was I offended. I mean, there, now she's touched my pride. And, um, and, and there's this, this flare-up within me where there should have been, well, naturally, I'm a sinner. I descend from Adam. I'm, I'm afflicted with original sin. So it should be easy for me to say, you know what? I'm sorry. I apologize. Can we make this right? I, I, I want to try to do better. And, and I didn't mean to come across that way. Please forgive me. It should be easy for us to repent. It should be easy for us to apologize if, we really, if our hearts will lay hold of this idea that, yeah, I'm a sinner. And everything I do is affected by sin, even when I don't mean to be sinning. Now we get to the good news, verse 15. So Adam is a type of the one who is to come in the sense that Adam is like a federal head of humanity. Adam is a representative of all who are related to him. And in this passage, there are two federal heads. There are two heads of humanity. There's Adam and there's Christ. Adam is a type of the one to come in the sense that he represents everybody. Everybody descends from Adam. Everybody falls in Adam. But if you're related to Christ, you don't have to be in Adam. You can be in Christ. And those are the only two places to be. Verse 15. Now we get to the gift of Christ. The sin of Adam, verses 12 through 14, the, the gift of Christ, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Isn't that good news? For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. Now, let, let's start with this, this idea that Paul articulates there in verse 15, if many died. Why is he saying if many died? Everybody died, right? Well, I think that he's saying many. One reason I think he's doing this is because of Isaiah 53 verse 12, where where there, there are these references to the many, and in, in the middle of verse 12, near the end, Isaiah says that he bore the sin of many. So I think, I think that Paul means to allude to these references to the many who are going to be reconciled and justified by what Christ has done, according to Isaiah 53. And I think he also wants to, he wants to narrow it down from everybody because not everybody receives justification. 
So not everybody's going to be justified in Christ. And so Paul's not going to say everybody on both sides of this thing because he's only going to have many for whom the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounds. Verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. I think when Paul refers to the free gift here, he's talking about what Jesus came and did. He's talking about the way that that by his whole righteous life, by the humility of his, his incarnation, by his full obedience to the Father's will and his doing of all the Father's pleasure, and then his willing going to the cross and his suffering, God's just condemnation and wrath against all sin, and then death taking him as the consequence of that sin, and then him rising from the dead. All of that is being presented in this phrase, the free gift. The free gift is not like the trespass. So you got these two heads, Adam and Christ. Adam trespasses, and Christ gives the free gift. And the many died through the one, namely everybody died through the one man's trespass. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And now he's going to back up in verse 15 and he's going to do it again. He's just compared uh, Christ and Adam and he's compared the trespass and the gift and the results of their actions, the result of the trespass being death, the result of the gift being abounding grace. And, and, and notice how parallel these statements are. The trespass of the one man, many died. The gift by grace of the one man, grace abounded for the many. And then look at verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So notice again the parallels. There was one sin that resulted in judgment and that, and that brought condemnation. And then after many trespasses, the gift resulted in justification. John Chrysostom talking about the way that grace abounded for many there in verse 15. Chrysostom says, What we received was not a medicine only to countervail the wound, but even health and beauty and honor and glory and dignities far transcending our natural state. And you think of that passage that we opened with, Philippians chapter 3. When he comes, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And and Jesus didn't just make it so that we're forgiven. Jesus made it so that we're forgiven and we're going to be glorified, resurrected, dignified. Chrysostom goes on, he says, For Christ has paid down far more than we owed. Yea, he paid down as much more as the illimitable ocean is than a little drop. How that mere spark of death and sin was done away when such a sea of gifts was brought in upon it. Think of the infinite worth of Christ. Think of the the almighty grace of God. And what has happened is God has overwhelmed our sin and he has washed away our 
our little stain that we can accomplish. I mean, I know that we're horribly defiled, but we're finite creatures with short little lives, and this almighty and infinite remedy has been applied to our stain. The free gift is not like the trespass. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. The free gift, at the end of verse 16, following many trespasses, brought justification. And then Paul says, for if, verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned. And there, there it is again. Verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now verse 17, death reigned through that one man. Death reigned through Adam and what he did. Much more, now listen carefully to this, much more will those who receive. And notice how Paul has been talking about the gift, verse 15. The gift is not like the trespass. Verse 16, the gift is not like the result. Well, what do you do with a gift? You have to receive it. You have to receive it. And if you don't receive the gift, it's fruitless for you, isn't it? You don't get to enjoy it. But look at what Paul says here in verse 17. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There's a gift that's been extended. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus, the bad news is that you are in Adam and you are under Adam's condemnation, both for what he did and for what you have chosen yourself to do. But the good news is that God in Christ is extending to you a gift. And this gift can overwhelm your past. It can overwhelm your circumstances the way a limitless ocean overwhelms a tiny spark of sin and death. If because of the one man's trespass, verse 17, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. You know, as, as, as those of us in this room who are Christians, we ought to be the most humble people on the planet because we didn't do anything to achieve our justification. We didn't do anything to get ourselves into God's favor. All we did was receive the gift. And it is a gift. It is a gift of grace. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. If you're a Christian, that's who you are. If you are a Christian, you have received an abundance, an unspeakable abundance of grace. God has directed his almighty love at you. And it will never come to an end. Much more will those who receive the... This is why, look at what it says. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. Death has been reigning. Verse 14, death reigned. Verse 17, death reigned. But now the people that receive the gift of grace are going to reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And that brings, brings Paul to his conclusion in verse 18. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Again, I think David Peterson is right when he says Paul's focus here is on the single action by which Jesus overturned the disastrous effect 
of Adam's single action. Isn't that beautiful? By his death on the cross, Christ overturned that wretched choice in the garden. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness. David Wells, in, in, in his book, No Place for Truth, in a number of places, he says, the last defense against evil held. That's a great picture, isn't it? It's like this mighty onslaught of evil, Satan and all of his demons rushing over God's world, trying to destroy it. And there's only one possible defense left. And the cross stands. And Christ dies. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19, for as... By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And, and notice how we get alls in verse 18, but then we get the many's again in verse 19. The many who will be made righteous in verse 19 are those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness in verse 17. What this means for you, if you're not a believer, is this gift is being offered to you. And you have to receive it. You have to be somebody that recognizes, yeah, I'm guilty. I'm guilty because of what Adam did. I'm guilty because of what I did. And I can't fix myself. I can't perfect myself. I can't raise myself from the dead. I can't justify myself before the living God. But there is a free gift of life and righteousness being extended to me. And I'm going to receive it. I'm going to take that gift. And Christ is going to be mine. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. And then you know what's going to happen to you? You are going to be transformed. Look at, look at what verse 19 says. So by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. You're, you're going to be declared righteous positionally. You're going to be uh, justified by a, a statement of God where you are declared not guilty, and not just not guilty, but righteous. And then the power of God's grace is going to start working on you. And, and you're, you're going to find your whole heart changing and your life transformed. And, and you're not going to be able to stop it. You will be made righteous. Now, Paul is still pursuing this argument against the Jewish idea that law is God's definitive answer to the problem of sin. And so he wants to, he wants to straighten out people's thinking on this. So he says in verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass. And, and you know, this is, what, this is what prohibitions and restrictions and rules and all these things, this is, this is what they do to our hearts. Uh, the one surefire way to get a man to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to tell him that that's the one he can't eat from, you know? That, that's the way it works with us. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So why would God want to do this? To put on display the glory of His grace. Go read Ephesians 1. So that, verse 21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin reigns, verse 14. Death, I'm sorry, death reigned, verse 14, from Adam to Moses. Verse 17. If because of the one man's trespass, death reigned, 
but, verse 17, those who receive the gift of, of righteousness and, and, and the abundance of grace, they're going to reign. And this is going to result in verse 21 in this description of grace reigning through righteousness. Grace will reign. And we will marvel at God's goodness and love, and we will be humbled, and we will grow in grace, and we will be made righteous. And it'll be like what happened a few days after my sister and I sort of patched things up. I mean, this is what happens to us. We get transformed, and God's love comes into our hearts, and, and we become ready to sacrifice ourselves for one another. So a week ago today, um, we were at my sister's house, and, and um, all, the whole month of December... Um, our, our, one of our sons has been saying, I want a dirt bike. I want a dirt bike. And, and sure enough, there's a dirt bike at my sister's house. And I want to ride that thing. You know, it's one of these little, I don't know, 50, I don't know how you describe it, little 50 engine, little, little small motorcycle. And I get on that thing and we're zipping around all over the place. And they've also got a four wheeler. And, um, and, uh, my, my brother-in-law is usually like Mr. Safety, but for whatever reason, he gave no instructions and the next thing we know, um, several of our kids, three of our kids, are on that four-wheeler with no instructions and no helmets, and they're just sort of letting it rip. And, um, and so I'm, I'm coming back down the road, and I go to make a wide turn to go up their driveway. And meanwhile, here come my sons on that four-wheeler, and just as I make this wide turn, I can look back and see that they're coming, and I can't get out of the way. And... and uh, you know, the, I can see that, that, that the, uh, he's trying to turn the, the four-wheeler and get it to turn, and it's not turning. And he doesn't know to let off the throttle or put on the brakes. And the next thing I know, um, I'm face down with the four-wheeler on my back, upside down. And um, my glasses are broken on the ground in front of me. And, um, and my son is under the four-wheeler next to me. I don't know where the other two are. And... Um, and I'm saying the words, we got to get this thing off of us. We got to get this thing off of us. And my sister is one of the first people there to get the four-wheeler off of me. Praise God, we had no broken bones. Praise God, my kids were not hurt. Um, praise God, we're alive. And, and, I mean, all of that was, was God's mercy. Um, you know... Grace was operative in my sister's heart. She didn't, she didn't think to herself, he deserved that for the way he treated me. <laughs> That's not the way we react, is it? When we love people, when God's grace is at work in our hearts, we, we're, we're eager to sacrifice for them. When grace reigns through righteousness, I, I, just think with me for just a moment about that phrase in verse 21. As sin reigned in death... Grace also might reign through righteousness. When grace reigns through righteousness, we will be free of all sinful impulses. We will be free of the fears that are caused by our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of others. We'll be free of the pain that results from sin. And, and it won't just be negative that we don't do bad things anymore. It'll be positive that we do the good that God would want us to do when grace reigns through righteousness. So we'll love others, we'll help others, we'll agree with others, we'll get along with others, we'll celebrate with others. You know what it'll be like? 
I'm going to say something really positive and really optimistic here. And I, and I, I want you to just wrap your heart, heart around it and say yes, even though I know there are exceptions. And I know that it's not always this way. And I, I mean, I know all this. But it's going to be like being a member at Kenwood. That's what it's going to be like. This is a great place. This is a great place. If you don't believe with me that this is a great place, you ought to spend more time with these people. That's, what I, that's my response, okay? If you don't think this is a great place, if you don't think that grace reigns through righteousness here, you ought to hang around here more. You ought to talk to people more. And I think what will happen is maybe some negative assumptions that you're possibly making about some of your brothers and sisters, some of those things will get sort of sanded down by your actual interaction with them. Grace reigns here by God, by God's power and love. Let's pray together. Father, you have been so, uh, so good to us. Lord, we, we deserve everything that comes to us in Adam and that comes to us because of our own sin, and we don't deserve any of this free gift by grace that comes to us in Christ. And Lord, we worship you, and we praise you, and we pray that you would cause the truth of the scriptures to be such a searching explainer through all of our lives. And we pray that you would encourage us that one day the good work that you have started will be brought to completion. And Lord, we pray that you would, you would make it so even now in our hearts. Lord, I pray that if there are conversations that need to happen, they would happen. I pray that if there are apologies that need to be extended, they would be extended. I pray, Lord, that, that your grace would melt our hearts and that we would be people who are transformed. Lord, we love you, and we want your name to be exalted here, and we pray that you would do it for Christ's glory. Amen.